1: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The news is now moving faster than cities in the north of England are being shut down. After the news yesterday that Manchester would move into Tier 3, whether Andy Burnham likes it or not, Sheffield was put into Tier 3 status just about an hour ago, uh, along with the rest of South Yorkshire, and there's a pretty good likelihood there could be even more localised measures over the next 24 hours. It's Prime Minister's questions today, and we'll be bringing it live to you from midday in the company of our political correspondent Charlotte Ivers. Before all that, though, we'll be asking where this is all going. Boris Johnson seems to be continuing to resist calls for a national lockdown from his scientific advisors. And with claims that the infections are rising, is any of this actually doing any good? We're already hearing this morning uh, that basically tier three might not be enough for some parts of the country. And if it's not enough to shut down the whole economy, what else can they actually do? We'll be asking Henry Hill from Conservative Home, and we're also entertaining a special guest, Baroness Kate Hurry of Lyle Hill and Rathlin. 0344 499 1000. If you live in South Yorkshire, it's all shutting down from midnight on Friday. So we'd like to hear from you. How will it affect you? Will you be sticking to the rules? And do you even know what the rules actually are? The latest madness from the Metropolitan Police is suggesting that pubs and restaurants should demand photo ID from customers before they let them in to counter all the fake names being given to the track and trace people. Marvellous, isn't it? Makes you feel glad to be alive. I was just asked a little while ago what my plans are for Christmas. (laughs) Well, I mean, it could be anybody's guess, really, that, couldn't it? I've absolutely no idea. Will there even be a Christmas? Will we even be here in December? Who can say? All I can tell you uh, is it's the fastest growing radio station on the planet and by Christmas we'd probably be stratospheric. 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be asking why on earth Prince Harry can't just shut up for a few minutes in his quest to step away from public life. He's been online again telling people how to improve the world and their lives. Maybe looking up the definition of privacy might be an idea instead of, in his words, engineering a better world from his £11 million mansion. What an absolute plank. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Well, it's all looking a bit gloomy out there. I have to say, as I gaze out over uh, the rooftops of London town, uh, I can barely see them, heaven's sakes. Very, very dark, very, very gloomy. Apparently, Storm Barbara uh, is threatening to absolutely lash uh, this entire nation with wind and rain. So if you're out and about in it, uh, be very careful. Uh, Be careful where you drive. I bet you're not too many cyclists out and about in London. It's funny how when the uh, rain starts falling, all these people who cycle to work don't cycle to work. It's funny when the rain starts falling, all these people who say, oh, it's really good for you to keep fit and go to work on a bicycle. They don't bother. They get on the train because they don't like getting wet, which is another reason why the cycling debate uh, is a lost cause as far as I'm concerned. But let's talk to Henry Hill, uh, who is, of course, Associate Editor at Conservative Home, because it's been a a tough old month so far for Boris Johnson. Uh, He's got Prime Minister's questions coming up later on today, which we'll bring you live, of course, with Charlotte Ivers uh, later on. Um, Henry, a very good morning to you. Good morning. So, um, I mean, I barely know where to begin with this kind of uh, regional lockdown, because it would appear that more of Britain is now in lockdown um, than than isn't in lockdown. uh, But it's not a national lockdown.
0: Yeah, so the government basically is encountering the problem that lots of people predicted it would have earlier in the summer. When you have a national lockdown, for all that it's absolutely horrible, the one thing that can be said for it is that, one... Every, well, OK, there are a couple of things. One, everyone knows what the rules are because they're all the same everywhere. And two, there's a sense of solidarity because everyone's in it together. The problem is that now that we're supposed to be in regional lockdowns, that means that people in bits of the country that are locked down can see people in other bits of the country continuing to go out and have fun. Mm. But the flip side is that if the government does do what some scientific advisors are suggesting and go for a national lockdown, people in bits of the country where coronavirus isn't spiking will naturally feel aggrieved Mm. because they're being forced inside in order to make Greater Manchester happy. Yes. So the government, and and this is compounded by the fact that the government hasn't managed to use the first lockdown to get a proper track and trace system going, so there's a general sense amongst a lot of the public that this isn't an effective response. I think if people thought that Tier 3 was based on effective track and trace and was likely to work, there'd be far less anger But the thing is that lots of people think they're being asked to make sacrifices that A, other people aren't being asked to make, and B, that the scientists don't think will work.
1: But the other problem I think the government has as well is that people have lost faith in the science, if you like. They've lost faith in the way that the scientists report the uh, statistics. They've lost faith uh, in the numbers game, which has been played really to a pretty cynical extent, I would say, uh, by the people from SAGE. I mean, even today, the Daily Mail has finally picked up on what I've been saying for about a week about this hospital beds nonsense. You know, the numbers that they're quoting on hospital beds are simply misleading. To say that, you know, there are more people in hospital now for COVID in Liverpool, than there were in March is entirely correct. But however, what they don't say is that COVID wasn't really a problem in the north of England at that time. Yeah, I think this is, again, the,
0: the, the problem here, A lot of the things the government has done have, have helped to, amongst other factors, have helped to erode uh, a degree of public trust. It's like at the beginning when everyone was saying, oh, you know, don't buy masks, masks don't work because they're worried about PPE stocks. That's fine, in that it might protect PPE stocks, But the problem is, if you're then insisting that everyone wears masks everywhere a few months later, people with long memories, it doesn't have to be that long, are going to remember the different advice. And it does, again, start to erode public confidence. I think this is the problem the government has. It knows this. Is he knew this from the beginning, is that there's only so many times you can actually go into full lockdown. Mm. One, the economy can't take it, right? I mean, people are always... It's very easy for the public to be very pro-lockdown when their only experience of it was when Rishi Sunak was absolutely hosing money at the economy in order to make it work. That can't be done indefinitely. But two, every time you do it, fewer and fewer people are going to rigidly stick to the rules. And the thing is, you can have a majority of people sticking to the rules... But if you've got a a larger and larger minority each time who aren't, it's gradually going to become less and less effective. And the less effective it becomes, the lower public support for it will be. Yeah,
1: I think that's absolutely right. But also, it doesn't help when you've got all these regional leaders like Andy Burnham, you know, standing up and making himself out to be some kind of, you know, kind of heroic figure. And I'm quite surprised, actually, at the way that he's being painted as such, you know, as if he's somehow doing something great for his community. Because the reality of what Andy Burnham has done uh, is that for the sake of five million quid, he has dithered, uh, he has not uh, got along with the, with the government's offer. And instead, he's now allowed for more people to be uh, uh, put into hospital, supposedly he's allowed for more people possibly to become ill from coronavirus, um, and he's doing what the government wanted him to do a week ago. Anyway,
0: so this is the, this is what tends to happen with devolved government in this country, which is that the the devolved politicians know that the best way for them to, you know, enhance their political careers and get re-elected is just to heap blame on Westminster, i.e. London, the national government, and then, you know, try and whip up public anger. And, you know, we've seen that in Scotland, we've seen that in Wales, and now we're seeing that in places like Manchester. Now, the government, you know, the, the, the Metro mayors were set up by the Conservatives under George Osborne, so this is really that coming back to Biden. I might have known. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean precisely. They should probably <laughs> get rid of them, to be honest. But, yeah. you know, the, 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 problem, but the problem is you've got places that are responsible for overseeing lockdown measures but aren't responsible for the economic policies that are necessary to support it. Now, yeah. the absolute worst case of this is Wales. Right. You know, the First Minister of Wales just announced a full lockdown and then turned around and said to Westminster, right, we're going to need a massive package of economic support to make this work. Mm. Because he hadn't negotiated that with the government first. Right. So this is the ill-thought-out devolution of power in this country coming back to bite the government again. You know, why create these very high-profile figures who have the power to whinge and get a lot of media attention but don't actually have the power to take responsibility yeah. for lockdown themselves.
1: And I don't get the sense that the people of Manchester are necessarily behind Andy Burnham. I mean, that press conference that you gave yesterday, where it looked like, you know, the sort of reformation of the Stranglers or something like that, as if they were going to go on tour uh, once more for the final time. You know, three different mayors got up and stood there and gave their version of events before the head of Stockport Council then became the fourth person. You know, three mayors in the city of Manchester. I mean, it's ridiculous.
0: Well, I think this—you know—the thing is that great, great, greater Manchester, as 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 the entity that that, that Andy Burnham is mayor of. Um, it's only a relatively recent invention in terms of having that mayoralty. Previously, it just had a few bits like you know passenger transport executive and stuff like that. A third of its MPs are Conservative, as far as I can as far as I can recall. But mm. At least one Conservative council. It is quite a diverse place. It's a bit like when when uh, when Sadiq Khan tries to speak for London. You're thinking, well, actually, mate, London's quite a big and diverse city, yeah. and lots so of it doesn't like you much at all. Exactly. So yeah, effort and, and, and you know, but efforts by the political leadership to present this united front it makes sense if they're trying to you know whip up public anger but yeah you're right yeah but it's of manchester won't like andy Burnham much the same way as any
2: of them
1: yeah exactly right and i mean the, the end result as as you say is that the scientists who said that we should be doing locking down sooner are now saying that we shouldn't be doing locking down and uh, we might have to do something else i don't know what that something else is likely to be
0: well, I mean, no, I, I think this is the problem. We've had this circuit breaker. Um, the debate has been completely consumed by the idea of a circuit breaker. Yeah. Personally, I'm, I'm very cynical about the idea of a circuit breaker, not because I, I think lockdown doesn't work. I do think you can only do so many of them. Mm. But I think that the thing is, the, the idea of doing a lockdown for, say, two weeks, right, the, the, the half term holidays, it takes a month for the impact of a lockdown to come up in the figures, it takes about 28 days mm. for the reduction. So, is it really plausible that if Boris Johnson said, "Right, we're going to have a two-week lockdown," and then two weeks later, deaths and hospitalisations are still going up, is it really plausible that he'll come out of lockdown? Is it really plausible that Keir Starmer and the opposition would let him come out of lockdown without mm. tearing him to pieces? No. So, what actually happens is we need to. Be, and this is this is the honest debate we need to be having. If we go into lockdown, we'll be going into lockdown for at least a month because that's how long it takes for lockdown to actually show up. That takes us from now to mid-November. We're then in the middle of the NHS winter crisis. It will be the flu season. I don't think we're honestly going to come out of lockdown in those circumstances. So I think the problem is we need to be having an honest debate. It's not really a circuit breaker. What we're talking about is probably lockdown till Christmas.
1: Well, it doesn't work, though. That's the problem. And the reason it doesn't work is because it's not really a proper lockdown. The only real kind of lockdown, uh, although it didn't work in Spain either, by the way, was was when they actually banned anyone from going out, unless it was absolutely necessary. You know, we've never really, even in the first lockdown, there were people basically, um, you know, walking around, cycling about the place, people going to work, uh, people who were key workers, you know, using public transport. You know, there's never really been a proper lockdown in this country. And I don't suspect there ever will be.
0: Well, I mean, I think I think the thing is for even, you know, the the lockdown we had in the summer, even though it wasn't proper, it was much more substantial than anything they're prepared to do now. I think the thing that sort of summed it up for me was when yesterday uh, it it emerged that, um, you know, the exemption in tier two and three areas on eating indoors with people outside your household is exempt if if it's a business meeting. Mm. And I'm like, this is this, this is not the policy of somebody who genuinely thinks that. Banning people from fraternising indoors is a long-term sustainable plan. It right. seems quite clear that the Treasury has looked at this and gone, no, we can't do it. It's no. absolutely unsustainable. And that does mean that you're going to need to find an alternative strategy. But the problem with that is, if you want to be doing this shield the vulnerable, let everyone else go back, which is kind of being held up as the alternative, mm. you need a properly functioning track and trace system. Yes. And we don't have one.
1: So government... Well, well, you say that, but I mean, surely there could be uh, an ability to uh, to shield the vulnerable if, say, you take the view that the vulnerable are the old people rather than uh, the vulnerable are practically half the population because some people are overweight or other people have got other underlying health conditions. But by and large, the vast majority of people who die from COVID-19 are quite elderly, right? Now, you surely can shield them uh, without having to do very much at all.
0: Well, I don't think so. I'm not an expert, so I'll, I'll obviously defer to the expert from this. But the, pe- the analysis I've seen suggests that there are, like, the number of people we need to shield in this circumstance is still a lot of people.
1: Well, that it's, dep- it's, again, it depends who you talk to, doesn't it? I mean, the number of people who yeah, have percent- died from this disease under the age of, say, 60 um, is minimal compared to the numbers of people who die on a daily basis anyway. That
0: is That is that that is true, and so it is potentially possible. I think the, part of the problem for the government is that currently covid deaths and this is wrong in my opinion but it's where we are covid deaths seem to be have a lot more cut through be a lot more politically salient than non-covid deaths and this is a problem because it means that if somebody dies of covid 19 and the government could have prevented it with a harsh lockdown ministers will get strung up Mm. whereas people who are dying of treatable cancers that have become untreatable because the nhs kept postponing their care That's not cutting through to the same extent. And I think the problem we have is that until the public get as scared and as angry about people dying needlessly because of postponed treatment for non-COVID conditions, the politicians are going to continue to prioritise keeping COVID numbers down over what's overall best for the country.
1: Yes, exactly right. And that's where there needs to be a shift of emphasis. I mean, as far as Boris is concerned, um, you know, whenever I get guys like yourself on, Henry, uh, who know the Conservative Party well, I always ask, you know, how is he doing within the party right now? What's his kind of, you know, popularity rating? Because I don't really see uh, popularity ratings much these days. It seemed to be when, when Sir Keir Starmer first started out, you know, there was a popularity contest going on every single day. Um, but how is he doing inside his own party?
0: Well, I, so the thing about Boris is that, as I, I, I say every time I, I, I come on, Bo, Boris is only the leader of the Conservative Party, and he's, his only basis for popularity is people thinking he'll win. There's no Johnsonism. Is there? mm. It's not like Margaret Thatcher where there were hundreds of MPs who, whatever, whatever you thought of her, they were in it for Thatcherism and they would defend her to the death. Boris is Prime Minister because people, Tory MPs, think he'd win an election. And the moment that ceases to be the case, he'll his power base in the party was to evaporate. Yeah. So he's currently, if you look at the Conservative Home Monthly poll, he's going down in the estimation of the members every month. I, I can't remember if he's entered negative territory yet. I think he might have. Right. But we publish that every month on the site. Uh, MP Opinion will be will We'll be follow, will be following that and keeping an eye on that. Yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty good barometer for where we are. So my my increasing suspicion is that Boris Johnson will not lead the Conservative Party into the next election. And that is an increasingly widespread view. You know, he will find a high note to leave on. You know, maybe that's some version of delivering Brexit. And then he'll step aside and we will have a new leader in time for the next election. That's about where I think his popularity levels
1: are. Yeah. And I mean, as far as getting Brexit done, we're going to be speaking to, to, to Kate Hoey coming up a little bit later on the show. As far as getting Brexit done, I mean, that may save him if it happens.
0: Well, it might save his legacy. I think the thing, I think the real challenge for Boris is just the fact that, you know, he became prime minister with a certain idea of what he wanted to do, which was to ease back on paying down the debt, spend a bit of money, um, sort of set course to a new, slightly more sort of spendy version of conservatism. And he's just not going to be able to do that. Because think about what the next few years are going to look like from the perspective of the government. Yes. OK, there'll be there'll be Brexit. Presumably at some point he'll get a deal of some description which I think will be his bowing out point. But then the next few years are going to be like, well, we don't know how long a vaccine will be. So it could be years of restrictions. And then the treasury is going to start insisting that we pay back some of the vast amounts of money that we spent on lockdown. And that's going to mean more austerity or more tax rises. Did Boris Johnson become prime minister in order to spend five years defending austerity and tax rises? No, I don't think
1: he did. No, and spending Um, more money than Jeremy Corbyn said he would in his own manifesto.
0: Yeah, precisely. I mean, COVID is, in a sense, wartime conditions. So, you know, you can understand why they do. But I don't think that Boris came into office to to be that kind of conservative. I don't think he'd enjoy it. Um, And that's why I think that will will be what eventually tips the balance towards him uh, stepping aside.
1: No, exactly right. Henry, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Henry Hill, Assistant Editor of Conservative Home, uh, with his take on Boris Johnson, whose popularity within the party uh, is not what it was, Um, but with the likes of Andy Burnham and this kind of mad, devolved parliament and government that we have in this country, um, it seems as though everybody's got it in for Boris Johnson. Um, I would be willing to cut him some slack if I thought that there was something that he was doing uh, which was actually helping the situation, but what he's still allowing uh, for these scientists to do um, is to tell... Um, basically um, untruths about some of the statistics like for example this morning in the daily mail analysis by ben spencer why won't they tell us the truth about covid beds it's time to end the scare tactics which is exactly what i've been saying literally for the past week the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio here's the latest nonsense to hit uh, the uh, the business of pubs and hospitality right the metropolitan police in london are now apparently writing to traders customers uh, um sorry traders of uh, pubs and restaurants saying that their customers should now produce picture id photo id either a passport or a driving license to either get a drink or a bowl of pasta is that really where we're coming down to you know do you mind if i have the spaghetti bolognese let me see your papers I mean, for God's sake, was it like the former Yugoslavia? Let's have a word with Mike Kill, who's CEO of the Nighttime Industries Association. Mike, a very good morning to you. Good
3: morning. Good morning. Now,
1: I've got some uh, very, very good friends in the hospitality game. Uh, I spend a lot of time in restaurants and pubs, strangely enough. Um, This is madness, isn't it?
3: Uh, it, it is i mean it's it's just another barrier i mean we, we we're starting to forget what we're there for in terms of social and in terms of fun I mean these restrictions are just literally systematically closing many of the businesses down uh, yeah. it's it's
1: you know and no support no further support. No, that's the point. I mean, all the people I've spoken to have said that they would rather and we've actually had a couple of pub owners on the show here who said we'd rather go into a tier three lockdown where they're telling us to shut the pub rather than saying you can only have people coming in one at a time. They're not allowed to talk to one another. They're not allowed to know one another unless they're from the same household. I mean, it makes a mockery of the idea of going out, doesn't it?
3: Well, very much so. I mean, look, we've had feedback from restaurants and pubs, and, and particularly in Tier 2 in London, where they're, they're turning around and saying that, you know, they're trying to communicate um, sort of some, some level of due diligence. But, they, you know, their bookings are dropping off systematically. And as you can appreciate, there are challenges like, I mean, my son goes to university, his name and address is in his university sort of uh, campus address. So what's, what does that mean? That he can't come out with us? He can't sit on our table of six if I go for a meal with him? Yeah. It's Very, very difficult. And the the letter from the Met this morning just epitomises the level of
1: confusion all round with regard to uh, these restrictions. Well, exactly right. And I mean, apart from the fact that it doesn't appear to be any great A body of evidence which suggests that hospitality is the cause of a spread of this infection anyway, because all the places that that I visit certainly are COVID secure. You sit very far away from one another. Um, You know, there's there's lots of shielding going on. Uh, All the all the staff are wearing masks or they're wearing, you know, some kind of covering on their face. And, you know, there's there's literally it seems to me that the government's picking on hospitality.
3: It definitely feels that way. I mean, when we've looked at the PHE figures that suggest that only 4% of traceable transmissions come from hospitality and we've seen this array of restrictions come in. I mean, the best case scenario in terms of suppressing is 4%. Yeah. What about the other percent
1: Yeah, exactly right. And also, I mean, if you are going to start demanding a photo ID from people who quite understandably might be reluctant to reveal exactly who they are, um in terms of you know showing you proof of it it's just going to stop them going isn't it well we're, we're seeing that all the time
3: now i mean many people are saying that they've dropped down from pre-curfew at 60 percent of capacity post-curfew dropping another 60 percent, and with these further restrictions i mean we're seeing businesses just drop off a cliff now and and it's just not it's not workable not operationally it's just not viable mm. and, and the problem we have is without that support and You know, while we sit here and we stand by the leaders of, uh, you know, the major cities and asking for further support, it needs to be a robust proposition that's going to allow us to sustain. We can't just be allowed to sort of drift off and lose these venues and spaces, which are actually significant parts of, of British culture.
1: No, absolutely right. I mean, I'm looking at a video right now, which is not London, but Liverpool, where there are six police officers walking through a pub looking to see whether people are eating. As well as having a drink, and I mean, there's more police officers looking for people than there are customers.
3: Well, quite right, and I've seen that video as well, and it, it's it's you know it feels almost draconian. It does, doesn't uh, it? And we've seen that we've seen you know many like that. I mean, we've seen police officers and licensing officers standing at people's tables at ten o'clock yeah. while they finish to sort of get them out. We've seen police officers measuring social distancing from from pictures on Facebook and things like that to, to catch operators out. I mean, we're the most regulated space out there and we're covid safe we're only operating at 40 percent of capacity in the majority of circumstances so what we don't understand is why we're being isolated and almost
1: exiled to a point of running running the businesses down. right and what do you make of all of these kind of tier threes that are going on now we've got south yorkshire uh, we've got manchester going into one liverpool already in one i mean obviously a lot of your businesses a lot of your clientele there uh, will be affected
3: Oh, they're, they're already hugely affected. I mean, we're you know, two to three weeks ago, we were seeing 60% of our members making people redundant. Um, and, and it almost feels like the support is too little too late. Mm. Um, is two and three. Nobody wants to open their doors and be unsafe. No one wants to compromise anyone's lives. But let's be realistic. If you're asking people within businesses and the workforce to step up and stand by government, then at least support them with something that's robust mm. and to allow them to live their lives. At the moment, that's not the case.
1: Do you think, Mike, that there's a problem here with the numbers of people in Parliament and in government and maybe in the scientific community who are not the kind of people who actually engage with hospitality? Because it's the only explanation I can think of. They don't really understand people who go out to the pub. They don't really understand people who go out on a Friday night and have a good time. They don't really understand people going out for dinner, um, apart from, you know, sort of working dinners and that kind of thing, because I can't really understand why there would be so so anti um uh, uh, the hospitality business
3: well i'll give you a prime example i mean under tier three they're looking at a three thousand pound grant a month yeah. to clubs bars you know uh, that have, have been made to close particularly nightclubs that haven't been able to open for i mean three thousand pound is is not is a drop in the ocean yeah. in support yeah. and and goes the, the sort of misconceptions around uh, the businesses we represent and, and shows that absolutely that they don't understand the cost or the the implications in terms of cost to support some of these these businesses within our industry no, but right. it's, it's a huge challenge and, and and yes they need to open the doors and communicate more i, I believe in uh, which is vital
1: and what about the uh, 3000 what's that supposed to cover presumably not employees
3: no no it doesn't but I mean for some of these businesses it won't cover the energy bill let alone anything else and if you the other challenges. I mean, we've got a moratorium that uh, stops any of the landlords uh, taking action against rent arrears. But I mean, we're three quarters down the line. Come the 31st of December, everyone's going to be exposed to an immense amount of debt on top of the, the potential loans and and uh, and things that are already behind them. So they've got to consider whether they can continue with that level of debt. And, you know, with these, with these further restrictions coming out and businesses almost going from the 4th of July being open with a, a shed of light at the end of the tunnel, we're now, going backwards um and we're you know we're literally systematically closing the sector and it it
1: almost feels like an industry in exile the way Mm. the government this and focused all of these restrictions on them. i mean the one the one small chink of light in the government's kind of armory seems to be rishi sunak who seems to be the guy who doesn't want to close down the economy he's always the one who seems to be sort of sticking up for for small business and even maybe for big business as well is there any any way that you can approach him and see what you can do well, we already
3: sort of feed into Bayes, DCMS, and, and via those departments to Treasury. And we're quite aware that um, the, the Chancellor is, is trying to push for uh, economic regeneration and growth of- to open doors but a lot of the work's got to be done on our side as well because as you quite rightly say they don't understand our sector so many of us in all the different sort of creative sectors uh, particularly for things like nightclubs and venues are working feverishly in the background to get to a model that we can literally open doors the only way that we can save everyone in here is by opening the doors the provision is only going to be a short-term solution which is the bigger concern we do need a We need to understand what the plan is so that we can plan financially and plan with our workforces. At the moment, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. So very, very difficult situation for many businesses.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Well, good luck with it, Mike. Thanks very much indeed. Mike Kildare, CEO of the Nighttime Industries Association, uh, telling us the tale of woe, uh, which is happening to an awful lot of businesses in the hospitality game. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, well, you know, you just have to do without going out. That's not what it is about. It is about the fact that there are billions and billions of pounds generated by the hospitality industry that millions of people work in it and it is a business uh, which this country is very very good at and it is a business which employs many many people it is a business which pays into the exchequer many many millions probably billions of pounds and it is being slowly strangled by this madness over covid 19 and it's one of the few places i would say where most people go which is actually properly regulated, properly safe and properly policed. And what we don't need uh, is the government killing it all off, do we? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, Now, we've got some great uh, news coming up for you from uh, the Royal Mail. Postman will now pick up parcels from you uh, as well as bringing them to you. We'll get to that very, very shortly. But just before we do that, uh, I just want to draw your attention to, I'm afraid, the world's most annoying couple once more. Uh, It is, of course, you know who I'm talking about, Harry and Meghan. In their quest to leave public life, they decided to move right to uh, a very, very quiet island off the coast of Vancouver, a place called Vancouver Island, funnily enough, uh, which was so quiet that nobody was even there, really. About a few houses, very few paparazzi. Very few uh, people who would bother them. But they decided it was a bit too quiet there. So they decided, despite the fact that Meghan Markle had promised never to live or move back to the United States of America while Donald Trump was president, uh, they moved back to Hollywood, right, Uh, where they managed to... um, sort of busk on somebody's couch for a few uh, months while they were waiting to buy their own house. They've now bought their own house for 11 million quid uh, up in Montecito, a very nice part of uh, sort of Southern California, just north of Santa Barbara, uh, where their neighbours include people like Oprah Winfrey uh, and all sorts of uh, very famous Hollywood lovies, right? Now, uh, apparently, they've decided that they want privacy. They've decided that they do not want to be in any way bothered Uh, by the hoi polloi. They certainly don't want to be troubled by the paparazzi. And in their quest for privacy, they seem to be making a webinar stroke video every single day. Now, I don't know what you have to do to understand that trying to make yourself private means actually not doing anything in the public eye. But this is the latest guff, and I'm afraid that's the only word for it, from Prince Harry, formerly one of the world's favourite young men. He's basically saying... um, The world is full of hate. He says, um, bad voices on social media are so loud and damaging that they are damaging the community. Well, why don't you just get off social media then? Why do you keep going on social media to tell people how terrible it is? What is the point? Harry reckons that he wants to engineer a better world, really. And guess what? They were doing this uh, for Time magazine, which was no doubt paying them a pretty penny for doing it. Uh, they had amongst their guests Alexis Ohanian, uh, who is, of course, the husband uh, of their good friend Serena Williams. Uh, this is a guy who stood down from the Reddit board so a person of colour could take his place. Asked by Time magazine editor Edward Feisenthal about how she and Harry were coping during the pandemic, said, Megan, we've been able to spend more time With Archie. Because Archie doesn't have any friends. But we're his friends now. I mean, could he be any worse, these two? I mean, really? Really? He says that uh, the moment the media gets taken out of responsible hands, it leads to chaos. What does he mean by that? You guys should just sit down for a while, keep quiet for a while. If you really want privacy, stay away from the phone, stay away from the camera, stay away from social media. Trust me, you'll feel better for it. Let's talk about something good. The post office, for example, and the Royal Mail uh, has uh, got Mark Street, head of campaigns, to talk to us uh, because he's going to tell us all about this new plan uh, coming up to Christmas where you can actually get the post p- collected from your house. Mark, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike.
2: Thanks so much for having me on. Not
1: at all. Tell us about this plan, because, of course, a lot of people are now using all sorts of courier services to, uh, to send things back to wherever they got them from or to, or to go to points of collection and all of that. But this is a, quite an innovative plan for you guys.
2: Well, you know, exactly right. We're, we're shopping more and more online. You know, our volumes at Royal Mail, we've seen them climb, believe it or not, in the first five months of the year. We took on 177 million more parcels. And we're seeing this sort of gradual transition from letters towards more parcels. And this is a kind of natural extension of that. So, you know, everyone knows about the daily round. We're used to having our postman and postwoman coming round and dropping stuff off. The big difference now is they can take stuff away for you as well. Right. And I mean, obviously, we've still got the sort of the, the dreaded COVID problem.
1: Uh, is that going to create any, any difficulties? Because I know that a lot of people now, I mean, I once had a courier take a picture of my feet. Uh, because he had to prove that <laughs> prove that he delivered this parcel, and he was so far away from me that when I checked later to see what picture he'd put up, it was a picture of my feet. Um, I mean, are you able to? to presume you're not able to get too close to people.
2: Well, I, hope, I hope you're wearing some nice footwear there. I did. No, I, I had some very
1: nice kind of um, you know boat shoes, which I can it was very in nice. the summer.
2: I would expect nothing less. <laughs> I mean, you know, from our side, um, we were the first company to actually introduce contact-free delivery, so right from the very start of the campaign, we've been very concerned about health. We put our people when they right at the door, put the parcels down, they step back. We don't use the PDAs for the time being and you know we, we do it as contact free as we can. The same thing's going to apply here, but just in reverse. So if you want to send a parcel, you go online, you book in a slot with your postman and postwoman. They come along, you put it down, step back, we pick it up and hey presto, it's it's in the post.
1: Do you have to stick anything on it? I mean do you have to put stamps on it, do you have to put franking yeah. stuff on it?
2: You're absolutely right. So, so you know, it, it's aimed at two things really. You mentioned yourself about returns. So this is when you buy a t-shirt or some some boating shoes that don't fit, whatever. <laughs> you know, and you want to send them back. You always get this kind of package with a prepaid um, envelope. Yeah. So you can send them back that way, or else you can go online, and we have an online service where you work out the size of your parcel. There's a guide to help you do this. You can print out your own postage and stick it on. So it's all designed to be as convenient for people as possible. Right. Okay. And so when does this actually start, Mark? Well, it's starting now. I mean, you know, if people want to put the service into action, go to RoyalMail.com and uh, you can actually book in a a slot with one of our postmen and postwomen who are, you know, doing a great job. I just want to thank our colleagues for keeping everyone going throughout the coronavirus pandemic. But, uh, you know, they've kept the UK connected Throughout all of this. And and this is just another service we're bringing.
1: Yeah, because it's been tough as well in sorting offices and things, hasn't it? Because presumably you can't have as many people working in there as you would normally do.
2: No, you're spot on. You're spot on. We we have very strict um, social distancing measures and it does put the operation under some strain because you think about it. We're a business that's used to passing parcels to each other, sitting next to each other. So we've redesigned all of our delivery offices to make it much safer for people. And that's an ongoing body of work.
1: Okay, And it says it's only 72 pence, this service. What is that? Is that just uh, uh, in addition to the actual postage or what?
2: Exactly right. It's 72p for a postage item. But if you're sending back a return, you know, the pair of the T-shirt that doesn't fit, the the trousers that don't fit, then that's only uh, 60p. Okay.
1: Well, it's a great idea. Um, and people, I'm sure, will be making great use of it coming up to uh, coming up to Christmas, because even if we can't have Christmas, well, at least we can have some presents to open, you know, for heaven's sake. Very good stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Mark Street, head of campaigns at Royal Mail on the news uh, that you could now get picked up postage uh, from the post office from your Royal Mail. Uh, I think a lot of people will welcome that. Finally, some good news, people.
2: mid with Mike Graham, Talk Radio. Now, I'm
1: delighted to say that Kate Ho is here. Um, do I have to call you Baroness, or no. is no. Kate no. okay?
4: Kate's fine.
1: Kate's fine. Lovely to see you. Um, we haven't really seen you since the sort of uh, since before the lockdown, I guess, certainly. Um,
4: yes, yeah, I've spoken to you a number of times. You've been on the phone a few I times. I did something from Rathlin one day. Yes, indeed you <laughs> did.
1: Well, Northern Ireland's a good place to start, isn't it? Because yeah. they're in the midst of their sort of uh, two-week lockdown where the kids are being told to stay off school for an extra week. How's that all going? Because I, but the thing I always wonder about is what is the end game? When do you say it was successful? At yeah. what point do you measure that?
4: And the worry is that as soon as you say it's vaguely successful, and come out, it doesn't necessarily mean that the virus has gone away. No. So um, no, Northern Ireland has been slightly ahead of it in that we've had the um, the, the rule that you can't visit in other people's homes inside unless mm. you're in a, a bubble. Right. Which of course I've mean, never quite understood bubbles because anyone could say they're in a bubble. Well, you really. could. I mean, I but think
1: the point is you're meant to be in the bubble and stay in the in bubble. S- aren't yeah, you? and stay in that bubble. I but suppose. anyway,
4: that that's 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 been going on now for over a week, and the schools got two weeks. Um, break instead right. of one week. And um, it's... The, I think this, the argument there is the same as everywhere else. The hospitals aren't overflowing. No. And originally, we all accepted a lockdown because we thought that this was going to save the NHS. Right. And, of course, then, as soon as the lockdown slightly changed, we didn't see cancer patients and all the other ish- going back into no. hospitals. no. And now it seems like as if although there are, unfortunately, a few more people going into hospital, in terms of the extra cases of people with COVID, the hospitals aren't overflowing. Well, that's the trouble. Um, And and, and, and we just... I think the crucial thing is nobody... You know, and I'm I'm a politician, so I know how, you know, people can spin and do all that sort of thing. Uh, But the reality is nobody really feels they know what the background and the science is and
1: I don't even think the scientists do and I think the trouble with the scientists at the moment is they're using very selective pieces of data to convince us of something. Mm. Um, and I think people are fed up with that. And well, I think when, when, for example, one of the ones that's annoying me at the moment, when they keep saying, oh, there's more COVID patients in Liverpool now than there were in March, that's because COVID wasn't really in Liverpool in March. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. your reason for that. You know? Well,
4: one of the one of the reports that's just come out in Northern Ireland actually yesterday was a, a the first sort of evidence, supposed uh, evidence about it all. And when you go into it in great detail... What, what what set certainly is being said there is that you know, for example, closing small hairdressers isn't actually, in terms of the di- the difference that's going to make, is right. just minuscule. Yeah. And yet there's all those sort of one people, one person hairdressers who've spent quite a lot of money, a lot of small businesses, making themselves as safe as possible, mm. having their clients back, and suddenly they're they're told they can't operate again, and and they're the people, you know, and yet looking around, say, the House of Lords at the moment, which is practically empty. Mm. But it's the people who are doing the catering, it's the people who are doing the cleaning, it's mm. the security guards. They're all working. Yeah. But all the sort of management-speak-named people are all working from their well, this nice is the trouble. homes. And I, and I think this is the problem, isn't it? Because so we've, got,
1: we've got a two-tier society. We've Absolutely. got a whole bunch of people who are relatively middle-class, relatively well-off, who can work from home. Yeah. And then the people who can't work from home, mostly... Uh, are manual workers, yes. people who do work in restaurants or work in pubs or work uh, in the House of mm-hmm. Lords, cleaners, those kind of people. Yeah,
4: and, and, and it's, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, the government should be calling all civil servants back. I've said this yeah. for a long time. I don't understand it. If we want to, in, a, in, a, in a, even even with the middle tier that London apparently now is in, mm. <laughs> um, I get a bit confused about what the difference is. Well, I mean, I. I think everyone is. Yeah. I mean,
1: if I ask people about certain situations, you know, what, mm. for example, could I do? This was when I put to John Rental the other day. If I got on a train to Newcastle, I'm not even sure if I can now but I think I still can, um, and I get off at Newcastle and I've met somebody on the train and we want to go for a drink in the pub in Newcastle station can we do that?
4: Yeah, are you uh, a London person or a Newcastle person? Well I mean I guess
1: ways, yeah, but I don't I mean, I mean, don't know no, what the no. answer is to any of those questions, and when you see police I've just seen a video today from Liverpool of police sort of marching through a pub looking for customers to make sure they're eating as well as drinking, you're Obviously. just kind of going
4: what's going on? I know, and it, it completely takes away people's Dignity of knowing that they've got common sense right. and understand it. I mean, I, m- my view is everyone should know that there is a danger from this virus, yes, just like there's no a danger question. from all sorts of other things. But yes. this is a day. And, and you must be, you must be c- conscious of that. Yeah. Take as many precautions as possible. Do the obvious things mm. of washing your hands. And-, and I
1: certainly would go along with that. And I had Piers Morgan in here the other day and he and I differ on the way that the government should uh-huh. be proceeding. But we both said... Well, actually, we're being quite cautious. You know, we're of a certain age. Um, You know, I'm not exactly, you know, sylph-like. You know, I realise that if I did get it, it might be a problem. So I'm very careful about what I do and who I get too close to. And, And if I'm even on the street... Uh, I, I tend to move away from people if mm. they're t- if they're walking too near me. No, I think we all do that.
4: But how many of those students, for example, the big numbers of students that were were locked down the mm. in the north? How many of them actually went to hospital? How well, many of them were any really them ill? Exactly. Any. And yet that same weekend four young people of students died from drugs. Yes one young woman from northern ireland who yeah. was a perfectly you know sensible young woman something had happened right. and there was hardly any talk about it and it was all about these people being locked well, when you
1: take when you say to people you know you you do realize that there are 1600 people who die every single day um uh, in this country um, or every week rather um and when you look at the covid figures when they're in single figures and yet you're going into tier three mm. you suddenly think well, what is, what, what's what's going on here? And I think the government has to look, really, at a different approach, yeah. does it
4: not? And how do governments change without, you know, that that's always a problem for politicians. They don't like to admit that perhaps they've been wrong mm. on something. Yeah. And I think that's, I think it's the mark of someone who's actually a real statesman, statesperson, person. that I'm supposed to say these I days? suppose so, yes. Um, th- that they can change their mind mm. and say, well, actually, maybe we did... Maybe we should be looking at something different. But I think the scientists and I, you know, the scientists, there's so many different scientific views, but the government only seems to be listening to
1: yes. a particular I mean, we do. I mean, we have heard in the last couple of weeks or so that Boris Johnson has not listened to those in SAGE who said he should complete do a complete lockdown. national yeah. lockdown, like Sir Keir Starmer asked for uh, yeah. last week. But I wanted to ask you about the whole business of, of, of devolution and -hmm. and what has happened to this country because what we've seen up in Manchester in the past week to me has been a bit of a pantomime you know Andy Burnham attempting to make himself look like some kind of people's champion you know that press conference yesterday was laughable I Mm. thought when they were producing one mayor after another you know Um, and yet he's now done what he could have done a week ago and nothing... Taking
4: has,
1: the money. <laughs> well, he's taken the money, which he yeah. said it wasn't about, but clearly it was about. Yeah. Uh, there's only £5 million between them in terms of what they would agree and what they wouldn't agree. And meanwhile, if he actually cares about the situation of, of safety, then surely he's put more people in danger, is not
4: he? Well, I think I think he it hasn't been handled well because you either believe that there is a need for more measures to help protect people, or you don't. And if you do, then... That, yes of course you want to discuss support and money but you know that shouldn't be the thing that holds up taking the measures mm. but also I, I, I've, the whole idea that somehow that people there were against further measures which may be quite right mm. but at the same time the National Party was Labour Party was calling for a, yeah. a, a full lockdown right. in, in parts of the country where there's like in Cornwall and so on where there's no problems yes. whatsoever so I think I think, I think what this will do at the end of it all, whenever it is all over, I think we'll, we'll have a, 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 pr- a hope there's going to be a proper debate looking at, first of all, whether we needed mayors. Mm. I mean, I was never f- felt that we needed mayors, but also the whole way devolution is working that we're now, you know, we talk about a United Kingdom, but we've got, you know, four, three different uh, assembly, government, mm. parliaments, whatever you want to call them, and they're not coordinating and, and nobody not...
1: seems too sure what powers they have. I mean, Mark Drakeford came out not yeah. this week to, to lock down Wales, but the, a couple of weeks ago to say that people coming from, you know, highly infected areas of England wouldn't be allowed into Wales. Yeah, I mean, that's Everybody the... went, well, hang on a minute. How, how do you get the power to do that?
4: Yeah. I, I, that is the kind of thing that, you know, we're a small country. Yeah. The United Kingdom is not a big country and I, I've never felt, uh, you know, the need for that kind of devolution, but it, it, once you start it, it never stops. Right. You well, never get back. I was
1: joking to uh, to Alistair Stewart earlier on, on the, when I was uh, taking over from his mm-hmm. breakfast show. You know, what are we going to make? Hampstead Garden Suburb, its own republic, or, you know, Peckham. You know, the People's Republic of Peckham. I'm sure there'll be some people in Peckham who'd like that. But, you know, it gets ridiculous. Sadiq Khan, the same. I mean, this is a guy who even went to Brussels at one point yeah. to ask if London could be made an honorary member of the European Union. Uh-huh. And you kind of go, really?
4: I know. I I think I think we, we went into devolution without the thought and the care and attention to how it was actually long-term going to affect the unity of the United Kingdom. Mm. And we've seen... And, of course, it doesn't help when you've got um, different political... You know, different parties ruling different parts of... Uh, you know, there's a, in Wales and it's a Labour one, so they're obviously going to be wanting to play politics. Yeah. Uh, in Scotland, you've got the whole extra dimension of the Scottish nationalists. Um, I mean, Northern Ireland have too many problems with each other they to do, worry about they? having. And, I mean, the Arlene, Arlene
1: Foster's had her kind of uh, a day in the sun, hasn't yes, she? Yes, well, she I think I think she was.
4: I think it was quite a. A lot of damage done to the whole assembly mm. uh, because of the uh, RHI, the the heat yes. project that went hugely wrong. Right. And a feeling that people in Northern Ireland, not people, that the um, assembly uh, and the executive were too interested in getting money rather than actually thinking about what was in the best interest of the United Kingdom and that was very worrying. That's
1: the other thing that we're hearing about a lot of these devolved cities as well because they're very interested in getting money and apparently they get more money the higher the tier uh, that they go into so if they go into tier two they get a certain amount per head of population going to tier yeah. three they get even more and it seems to me that uh, you know as it was being said earlier in scotland they can make rules but which we have to then pay for as a national government yeah and the same in wales welsh lockdown is being paid for by the uk government
4: yes and and the, the border between scotland and england i mean that idea sounds i think uh, scottish government was saying too they wanted to st- Perhaps stop people yeah. coming over. Right. We're going to, you know, the Hadrian's Wall. I know. Again, and it's, Absolutely it's, nuts, isn't it? And uh, makes it actually even more unlikely that if Scotland um, was to think of going independent, that they would ever get back into. Uh, the European Union. I mean, we'd have all the same board, same yes. discussions there about. Well, borders. we would. I mean,
1: funnily enough, I was going to ask you about that. Whether there's still a conversation in Northern Ireland about the border and about the the No Deal Brexit, which may or mm. may not be happening. I mean, what's the sort of the temperature? Well, the the, the,
4: the, the the Internal Markets Bill is is making people in Northern Ireland a little bit. Um, you know, on the one hand, they they those people who want to say that it's breaking international law, or mm. making great fuss about that. On the other hand, they know that actually what is going to happen if there isn't uh, some change to the protocol, mm. that business in Northern Ireland is going to be affected, is going to have more uh, bureaucracy because of the, uh, the protocol. Mm. And, I, you know, I see the, the, the Internal Markets Bill as a safeguard, as something that's there when, I mean, I think the EU have been acting in bad faith all along, but yes. at some stage it will be proven probably to everyone that they are. And I think the government needs a fallback. But, you know... Th- The Belfast Agreement is always the thing that is pushed. You know, we mustn't... But the Belfast Agreement, when you put a border down the Irish Sea, you're just as much affecting the Belfast Agreement Mm. as putting a border down between the Republic and uh, Northern Ireland. And I I think a lot of people have gone along with that because, uh, you know, I'm afraid the Irish lobby is very... In in America in particular, the nationalist lobby is very, very strong. And... um, but in the, on well, the end, well, most Joe people Biden in Northern and Nancy, Ireland...
1: Well, Joe Nancy Pelosi have already stuck their aura in, haven't they? Yeah, saying about a trade deal. Yeah, yeah.
4: I mean, a lot of people just don't understand it, and they've never read the Belfast Agreement. No, of course. But But most people in Northern Ireland like in England Scotland Wales just want to get on with their lives just want to get businesses working just want their not not to have to have their and the sooner it happens the better really
1: because they'll realize actually that nothing much has changed in fact and that life goes on and that we haven't fallen driven off a cliff and we haven't all fallen to the sea and and life is much the same well
4: I'm hopeful that when we do you know January the 1st whether we've got an agreement or not a trade deal or not and you know I I think we're in such a position that quite honestly it's not going to make a lot of difference if we don't get some kind of agreement and mm. if they won't give us at least what Canada's got yes, why should we? Because there's no point us going through all of these four years now to leave and become independent mm. and be able to make if we're going to still be ruled by yes. the European no. Court of Justice. And an
1: awful lot of people in this country will be very, very disappointed with Boris Johnson and he doesn't need any more disappointed
4: people. I think this is why Boris cannot afford... Give in on this right. to the EU. I really think he, he, he will has to stay firm, has to stay completely signed up to the idea that when we leave properly at first of January, we are truly independent mm. and we will not in any way give in on fishing, on 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 the state aid issues right. and on the European Court.
1: No, of course. Now, you worked quite closely with Boris, didn't you, when he was Mayor of London. What do you make of the way he's getting on right now? Because I think a lot of people are disappointed uh, Mm. in what he's done. I think, you know, to be fair to him, I try to give him the benefit of the doubt and and I pretty much did until about probably two months ago when it started to look as if he was making, you know, what Mm. I regarded as the wrong decisions about the whole COVID situation. But um, it can't be easy for him.
4: I think he's had a... I mean, if anyone... Most people going through what he's gone through in the last year... I I do think that he has been fairly uh, affected uh, by having covid himself and yeah. being genuinely very very ill. Well uh, close to death. And and that that kind of must affect your attitude mm. to things but you know I would love to see what I call the old Boris yeah. you know back again because at city hall he he was very very good he he allowed he had very good people around him who um were able to get on with doing things but he always was there as the you know, the person who made everyone feel that yeah. things are going well. Right. And I think he's in this great dilemma where he would love to be doing a lot more of being, you know, optimistic. Yes,
1: but, but it's very hard. Uh,
4: yes, it's very hard. And when you've when you've sort of attached yourself to people like Witty and um, what's the other one Balance. called? Yeah. yeah. And, I just call them the brothers and grim. The sort easier. of doom and gloom. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's very difficult for him because he knows that if anything then goes wrong, he's going to get mm. completely um, blamed. And they also
1: um, seem to be governing with the idea of, with sort of one eye on the mm. future but, and this and this, this possible inquiry you know what, as to I, what they did.
4: You know what I do think, I might, I think, and it's not anti-Mike Hancock at all. Um, I'm sorry, Mike Hancock.
1: Matt he, Hancock. Matt Hancock, yes. goodness,
4: didn't even get his name right. Don't worry. Um, but, you know, I do think someone who's done his job for this length of time, mm. I think it wouldn't be a bad idea for the Prime Minister to say, Matt, look, you've been brilliant, Yeah. you've kept things, you know, you, really you have really had a break, it, but now you need a break. We, yeah. We're going to move and we're going to put a new health mm. minister in. And I think that would sort of change the whole way atmosphere yes, and give, I think... give the opportunity to change policy yes. slightly.
1: I think you're absolutely right, because it would make the dynamic different and it would then give him an opportunity to yeah. say, OK. I don't cause...
4: mean sack him. No. I don't want to sack Matt Hancock. No. but I think he should be moved and we get a new health secretary with a different kind of persona to the public and that allows the Prime Minister to make some changes.
1: Because Matt Hancock has become very kind of gloomy as well. I mean, yeah. he looks like a man who's had enough. He looks like a guy Yeah, who, he's very... It he must be really, exhausted. Oh, it must be awful. I mean, I, that's why I'd say I do have some sympathy for them. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, I also have a great deal of sympathy for the people of this country who are suffering, like the people who haven't been paid any money at all, the freelancers, the people who want to go and watch a game of football, for example. I mean, you were heavily involved in the sports yeah. and the Olympic side of things. You know, I mean, there must surely be a way of getting crowds into football grounds oh. which can be done safely.
4: It's just... I- There is a way for all these things to be done safely, apart from perhaps some, you know, there's some things that probably are not,
1: possible. I mean, nightclubs, so class- I can see how that's yeah. difficult.
4: And and standing in crowded pubs, but yeah. being able to sit as as people have been doing, and closing at 10 o'clock, what is the point? Why not close at 11 and then some people will leave at 10? Yeah, or of course. You know, it just seems that, it, that, that, and I think what you need now is somebody who's going to be prepared to say, look, actually we've thought about mm. this and we did make a mistake yeah. on the 10 o'clock, or we did make a mistake on this, but we're not going to be able to do that while we still keep the same... Um, health secretary. Exactly,
1: and I think also with the with the, the the medical advice that they're being given, it's almost as though they're saying well, you know, we're not going to run this bus because it might be overcrowded or it might crash. Yeah. You know, life goes on. You know, you and I both know that there are things that can that can happen. Uh, we've all had, you know, relatives who've died suddenly. We've yeah. all had, you know, terrible tragedies that have happened in life. And you, it's part of life. I we mean, can't
4: plan. I no, mean, life and is it not... it,
1: but, but nowadays you get you get accused of being heartless. You know, you want to kill people. You don't care. You know, this ridiculous phrase, yeah. let it rip through the society. Yeah. I'm, nobody's uh, uh, urging for that no, to happen. No, no and, and I'm, I'm very that. happy
4: to, to take, you know... To wear my mask and do all the things yeah. that, but i just think within within uh, you know there are there, there are things that now do not make logic they, they're not logical no. they don't make sense no. and the average person knows that and the problem is then for the government is that once they begin to not really think it's the right that they need to do this they won't do it so we're going to end up in a in in, in a worse situation yeah.
1: i mean i guess you might say that the only reason to be anything other than um Um, You know, uncharitable to the government is that there's no other government that seems to be getting it particularly right. We keep hearing about (laughs) Sweden all the time which starts to sound like a broken record after a while but I mean, you know, in in the Republic of Ireland for example, they're going into a six week lockdown I I was reading the other day about New York, which is a terrible state, there's hardly anybody going there they're banned um, from travelling from 35 states into Manhattan you know all the hotels are full of homeless people i mean you've not been in london much but you've been here oh, in the last couple of days it. i mean it's completely deserted I in most places
4: i just can't believe it and by the way on the on the uh, republic of ireland it's quite interesting that there were people in the republic of ireland calling for border checks Oh, really cuz you know, covid you know having made all the fuss about any come come kind of border yeah. checks on your on your lorry of cows going through right um but yes i i, I I think um, you know we. There are going to be so many businesses now that will not reopen. Small, small people who've put so much of their effort right. and time and money and just are being just abandoned. Up. Yeah, just given up.
1: They have because there is no way. Well, no way for them to go. I mean, and I
4: don't think there'll be any taxi drivers left soon. If my taxi driver, that a very nice taxi driver, brought me today. Yeah. Um, you know, he was saying it's just been so depressing.
1: Well, um, exactly. And, and it's not.
4: It's not the people. It's not the. He said he can live with the fact that there's. Not much, you know. Money's less. Mm. It's the the roads and the way that their life has been made impossible. Well,
1: considering that there's hardly anybody coming to work in London, the roads have never been busier. Mm. And you have to ask the question: Well, that's yes. obviously been a deliberate move by Sadiq Khan, who's trying supposedly to make the streets safer and less polluted, mm. but as a, as a result is making them more dangerous and more polluted.
4: Has anyone ever thought that Sadiq Khan doesn't really have a mandate this year because he was only meant to be in for... Well, he was. Yeah. I'm exactly so, right. i was exactly right. How does... Is he a, is he a properly... Uh,
1: Well, I'm not sure what the Constitution would (laughs) say about that. Um, We'd better not go into that. (laughs) But certainly, the trouble is, I can't see any way that he doesn't get re-elected because the the Labour machine, as you know better than anyone in London, Mm. is pretty efficient. Yeah, And I can't really see... you know, Sean Bailey challenging him in any meaningful way. Rory Stewart might have been able to, um, mm. but he's now sort of disappeared off into the ether. So, I mean, you know, sadly, but, but even he is going to have to see, surely, that that you can't have London and meet... Because if people did start coming back to work, it'd be even worse. It'd be literally, you yeah. would be like Sao Paulo, where you used to take four hours to get from one side of town to the other.
4: Yeah, it's, it's and it's all for improving and, and, and let, getting people to cycle, which is great, but... They, they're, not they have, they, though, they? n- they're not out there today, though. are They're they no. not I mean, out there today. I rain. didn't see a cyclist. Finally, all these
1: fitness fanatics <laughs> give up when it gets wet. How strange!
4: But it's, it's. I think it's gone too far in the direction of cyclists, mm. rather than re- recognizing yeah. that we're in a, you know, a big city and all those. Small vans that have to deliver things because people are buying things yeah. on, on online much more. Mm. Their their lives being made miserable.
1: Oh, exactly right. So finally, how was your sort of um, uh, engagement with the House of Lords? Because obviously, you've been going to Westminster, the Palace of Westminster, for many years. Mm. Did you manage to remember to go through the, the, the new the <laughs> second door that you're supposed to go? <laughs> well, through? Well, I came
4: the first night I was there. I came out the, the House of Commons door for right. oh no, the way out. But um, it's well, it's obviously very different there at the moment. I mm. mean, Parliament, as I said, is is kind of empty with. Yeah. Um, Everyone wearing masks inside, and the whole place is like a kind of just—it's just, it's just it's, bizarre. It's, it's so it's surreal, sad. isn't it? Yeah, it's surreal. Yeah. That's a very good word. But it's people are very friendly. I have to say that even probably someone, some of the lords who or ladies who would have been very opposed to my views on Brexit, and it is a, it is a Remain yes, the House of so. Lords. Mm but they're all very friendly and nice. And, I, you know, there will be opportunities. I haven't made my maiden speech yet. Until you make that, you can't actually intervene. Right. Um, so you have to sort of do that quite quite soon. Okay. And then, um, you know, I, I, um, I'll I, just continue to be myself and do what I think. And I won't have any whips running after no. me. No,
1: excellent. Well, I mean, our, our audience <laughs> loves you. So well, you're very welcome <laughs> to come back any time well, and talk clear. to us. And I'm sure we will do that anyway yeah. over the course mm-hmm. of Brexit and COVID and whatever else. And you can yeah. hopefully keep them honest uh, down there in Westminster. Well, well, that's very kind. Kate Hurry, thank you very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio it's time for homeschooling because we are of course just after the news at 12.30 uh, at that point in the show when we try uh, and bring you something a little bit educational something you may not have thought about for a while uh, something that you might be able to share with your children if they are indeed at home because whilst Akir Starmer thinks half term starts next week, uh, for some people it's already going on. Let's talk to Christopher Lloyd, author and editor of Britannica's all new children's encyclopedia Uh, he's also CEO of What on Earth Publishing because uh, we all remember encyclopedias, they were great uh pieces of learning materials to look at uh, many of us still have them in the house in book form christopher very good afternoon to you very good afternoon mike i mean i have to say i feel a bit sorry for today's kids because some of them probably don't really know what an encyclopedia is because they've got themselves into google and they've got themselves into finding out information from a computer and there's nothing better to me than you know sort of walking through one of those great big encyclopedias and just finding things to read
5: yeah I I completely agree. And Britannica has been at that business for over 250 years, amazingly. Mm. Um, But actually, from 2012 onwards, it put everything online, stopped printing. And of course, you know, Who can blame anybody for looking online with their phone or computer to try and look something up? Uh, The old-fashioned idea of an A to Z encyclopedia has kind of disappeared. Mm. Um, But then can you trust what you're uh, receiving online? And you're going to get interrupted by adverts and social media. And then uh, is it editorialized in a way that's suitable for you as an individual? And... For all those reasons, actually picking up a book, as you say, and, and and exercising your natural curiosity, which is what, of course, encyclopedias are brilliant for, is just as relevant today as ever, which right. is why you know, we've, we've, we've brought back the Britannica Encyclopedia for Children. And actually, it's the first new edition since 1984. So wow. it's a really special moment. That is a special moment. And, and would you say
1: that yeah. it's aimed at a specific age group or could it be useful to all sorts of different ages?
5: You know, I say it's aged seven to 107, to Mm. be perfectly honest, because the way it's it's written, it's really visual and it's very easy to um, access. We've designed it in a different way. It's not A to Z. Um, It's designed as a journey through knowledge from the beginning of time to the present day. So you have four chapters of natural history, space, earth, matter, life, and then humans enter the story in the stone ages and then we have ancient civilizations modern civilizations and the present day and with that structure which is you know different for an encyclopedia you can accommodate all knowledge yes but you can put it in the context of when it happened and it doesn't matter what you're interested in if you're interested in modern history or ancient history or nature or space it's got its own place so it's a beautiful way of connecting knowledge together which Mm. i think You know, that's something children lack when they're at school. We're in a habit of dividing knowledge into different subjects, chopping it up into geography, maths, history, you know, languages, whatever it may be. But our brains aren't chopped up into different languages and different areas of knowledge. We don't have a bit of history here and a bit of science there and the rest of it. That's fiction. Uh, What our brains love to do is connect knowledge. So that's what this book tries to do is to make connections and show you the context of, of uh, where everything lives and belongs.
1: Yes, as you say, everything is, is connected. And I don't know whether it's an age thing, but I find that I retain information much better if I'm actually looking at something um, written down as opposed to something on a screen. I don't know whether that's the same for, for kids you, these days. Yeah,
5: I, I, don't, I don't think it is an age thing. I think it's a, a natural thing. We're all actually, over millions of years, we're used to receiving information through reflections, if you think about it, mm. you know, off a printed page, or if you're looking at a beautiful view, or, or a painting in the National Gallery people wouldn't just look at a computer screen to have a look at a fantastic rubens they would want to go and see it because you see the reflections and the hues and this is the way the human brain has evolved and it's the same for children it's just that perhaps they're not encouraged to use the printed world in the same way that they were and maybe this this new britannica encyclopedia here is is a way for them to sort of rediscover the joy of picking something up and seeing it in a in its natural reflected form
1: yes and there it is i mean, how long did it take to put it together
5: well, um, this project has been uh, some time in the making, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, really, at least 18 months right. of hard work uh, with a brilliant team. But we've teamed up. We have, we're a, little, we're a, we're a, a, a um, non-fiction publishing company in Kent. Uh, and we've teamed up with Britannica, who are actually based in Chicago. And they have uh, about 400 people there uh, working on the encyclopedia that is obviously an online database Mm. now and working with experts all over the world and different universities. And we've been really fortunate to be able to latch into that and to be able to tap into their expertise. And so together as a team, be able to produce this really definitive, modern, visually exciting way of looking at all all the knowledge.
1: Yes. I mean, the one good thing about it as well is it will provide some kind of um, alternative to Wikipedia. Uh, which yeah. is one of my pet hates, because uh, yeah. everybody reads Wikipedia well, and presumes that it's all correct. And much of it is, but some of it isn't. Well,
5: yeah, but you see, it's an opportunity for people to rewrite history, and mm. that's something we have to be mindful of, yeah. particularly in the days of fake news. And you can't rewrite this book, and it's been verified time and time again by experts. But we've actually subtitled it, What We Know and What We Don't. Yes. because, And that's really important, actually, because you think of a traditional encyclopedia to go and find the answers to things, but many of the most interesting things don't have answers, or at least people don't agree what the answers are. So we've tried to pepper the encyclopedia with known unknowns. You know, what was the origin of life on Earth? Is there life in other galaxies? You know, there are so many things. What's the end of the universe going to be like? There are so many things that are unknown, that experts are spending their whole lives trying to find the answers to, that many kids today perhaps will be inspired by the fact that you can go to this book and find out what we don't know as much as what we do. Do you have
1: one on will we leave the European Union without a deal? (laughs)
5: <laughs> That's something we're actually going online it's known might unknown be unknown. a bit more useful on that certainly a known unknown. Yes.
1: Absolutely right. I'm looking at a couple of little factlets here, which are fascinating to me. Here's one uh, that says, Saint Isidora of Seville created one of the first encyclopedias as one of the last scholars of the ancient
5: world. And apparently he's also the patron saint of the internet. Well, there you go fantastic isn't it that a matter of fact these are brilliant um these these sort of facts I've developed a quiz show have you to go with the book uh, and I'm starting to do this funny it's one of these silver linings of lockdown mm. usually I go on tours uh, to places you know right. America or Australia or South Africa or wherever when we publish books I can't do that now because we're locked down but so I developed a virtual quiz show to go with the book excellent and excellent. Um, those are just the sort of things that people love to try and you know compete with each other online to, yeah. to see if they get the answers to so yeah uh, Yeah, it's great for that. Well, it's
1: absolutely. I mean, the general knowledge round of Mastermind was always the best one for me, you know. And so people generally have a thirst for knowledge, don't they?
5: They do. And I mean, we're all interested in different things and people love doing quizzes and in fact at the end of every chapter we've included a 14 question quiz all the answers are somewhere there in the chapter and it's just a lovely way of of, of making knowing stuff fun yes. and being able to you know find out more about the people you're around and what they're interested in and build your own confidence mm. by knowing that you know you are better than them in some ways and you're worse than them in others it's a great way of kind of of socializing because of course we're all social creatures but through the magic of reality and yeah. knowledge Brilliant. And it's available now, presumably in time for Christmas, is it? Yeah, it is available in all good bookshops and online. Um, obviously, uh, you know, we're, we're absolutely thrilled we have a terrific start. Um, we're already into our fourth printing after the first week. So uh, so it's very exciting to see that the Britannica brand has real power for people in print. And I think parents and grandparents will enjoy uh, reading the book with kids uh, as, as much as children will just love picking it up and, and finding out all sorts of things that their adults in their lives don't know. Um, and I also sign books. So if you're thinking of a personalized gift and you go to whatonearthbooks.com, you'll you'll see that I can, I'll can i sign the book and dedicate it for you if you like, and we stick a book plate inside. And obviously being a... Um, a publishing company here in the UK. We, we have the opportunity to do that kind of thing to make it a little bit more personal and special.
1: Fantastic. Well, Christopher, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Christopher Lloyd, uh, author and the editor of the Britannica All New Children's Encyclopedia. And if you haven't got an encyclopedia at home, I promise you, it's a really good idea to have one because it's just nice to have a big book that's got everything in it. Talk radio
3: across the UK, online on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent
0: Republic of Mike Graham